Yeah, let me just add my, my extra welcome to the many you've had, particularly if this is your first kind of time here. Uh, I vividly remember coming to this crazy church 17 years ago, and uh, we just want to say you're so very welcome here. And um, today we're actually starting a little bit of a new sort of sermon series that over the next eight weeks we're going to be doing a series that is unashamedly based on a sermon series that a, a, a sister church uh, in Eastbourne did. Uh, a few months ago, called The Big Objections. A good friend of mine, Andrew Wilson and Graham Marsh, are in leadership there, and they know this. So if you know the series and the similarity, please don't worry. Uh, They were very flattered when uh, we said to them, would you mind if actually we kind of piggybacked your brilliant series because of the excellence of your material? So um, we're doing that, and uh, it's really come for us at a very exciting season as a church because really for us, over the last few months and years particularly, One of the main things that we've really felt that we needed to grow in really was expressing through our lips and our lives the invitational heart of Jesus, that actually God, um, the God of the Bible, is an amazingly inviting God. You know, when you stand back from the Bible and you look at what's happened, this God who came down to earth to express that. And so we want to be a people who are actually, we're kind of equipped ourselves as we increasingly talk with people perhaps who wouldn't call themselves Christians, people who wouldn't share the Christian faith, it's important that we, we are equipped as best we can be to, to deal with the different questions and the things that come up. And also, as well as it being equipped, I guess our heart is that this hall would be, and all the other sites in the north of Canterbury and in Whitstable, as we all do this series together, that the halls would be rammed, absolutely stuffed, full of people who are perhaps those who wouldn't normally go to church, but are interested by these particular kinds of titles. And the kind of titles we're going to be looking at really are really the same questions that that I, when I was an atheist, um, 17 years ago, first came to this church. Um, I remember when I came here and started looking to the Christian faith, I remember these objections being very real to me in my heart, the ones that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And I guess our heart and our passion is this is that we would be able to demonstrate that to believe in the Christian faith, it really doesn't mean that you have to kind of throw your head out. That you don't, it's not just a kind of, I'm just going to believe, you know, a blind kind of belief, an emotional thing. It involves the emotions, absolutely, our hearts. But but the Christian faith, we're going to see over the next few weeks, is incredibly robust. Mentally, intellectually, it's incredibly robust. C.S. Lewis, many of you will know, who wrote the Narnia stories and many other things, he for 10 years debated Christianity with his friend Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, who was a Christian, and C.S. Lewis certainly wasn't a, a Christian. But over, those, over that decade of, in the pub, talking about stuff, C.S. Lewis came to, uh, he came to believe in Jesus, and I loved that the phrase that he used was, I was the most reluctant convert in the whole of Christendom. It was like he just ultimately couldn't shake the fact that it was, as he said, a reasonable thing to believe. What he means by that is it's based and it involves reason. That it's not a crazy leap of faith to believe in Christianity. So this is what this kind of series is about. And so today we're going to jump in. And our first title, if you're taking notes or just remotely listening, is, um, is this one. And it's our attempt to sort of summarize a certain group of objections that we'll look at specific examples in a moment. It's this. is why believe in a brutal, contradictory book full of fairy tales? Why believe in a brutal contradictory book full of, full of fairy tales. If somebody give me some water, that would be fantastic. Um, thank you. Oh, look at that. Everyone leaps to their feet. Brilliant. Thank you. We, uh, the, the church in Eastbourne um, 
did a bit of a survey with some of their friends who uh, didn't come to church. And this kind of objection came up again and again and again. Why don't you believe in God? Well, it's, it's because of these, these were real answers that people gave. Number one, the hypocrisy of the Bible. It should come up on the screen, I think. And how Christians seem to be able to ignore it. For example, the many contradictory verses in the Bible are usually met with, that's not how it's supposed to be interpreted. Secondarily, another one. Well, you assert that the Bible is the will of God, but that is only what is human, authors claim. Thank you very much, Callum. So how exactly can you convince me without this, I love this, self-referential loop, and thereby invalid recourse of, to what the Bible says? I think I know what he means. That what, that what it says really is the word of God. Thirdly, another one. The Bible was written by humans in the Bronze Age, and much of it, the account of how the world was made, where evil came from, is profoundly illogical and was clearly written as a mythical interpretation of reality in a pre-scientific age, such that only the most irrationally devout of Christians believe it. Another one. My greatest doubt in Christianity is the fact that the entirety of its doctrine is based on a single, highly questionable source, the Bible. There's more. Yahweh says, show them no mercy. Jesus says, love your enemies. And yet Christians claim that both are God. Surely that's contradictory. Next one. I don't like the idea that a group of people or a book written by people has the power to judge others and know right from wrong. I have often wanted to explore religion, but I find it unreachable and incompatible with my fundamental values. Excellent objection. Another one of a similar vein. People who, who think that every single thought or idea presented in the Bible is a literal commandment of God, regardless of context or the prejudice of the biblical author, a.k.a. the human element. Absolutely. Two more. My neighbour objects because, although his wife is a Christian, he cannot believe in Bible stories. They seem like fiction to him. And lastly, the Bible is riddled with demonstrably false information and hideous moral lessons. This is incompatible with an omniscient, and all loving God. Your religion is false, the end. I love that. It's brilliant. So, whoo, whoops. You can see there how what we've attempted to do is to take all those similar, there's different nuances there, of objections that I'm sure all of us uh, at times might have even thought or experienced as we, can, as, as we dialogue with people. And we put it into this one uh, title, which is Why Do Christians Believe in a Brutal Contradictory Book of Fairy Tales? And I guess I just want to, in the few moments we have, uh, have a couple of points to, to look at. Number one is actually the Bible, we believe, is not a brutal, contradictory book of fairy tales. And we'll spend most of our time just kind of responding to that. But then secondarily, we also want to say that Christians ultimately, they base their life, can I say this, don't, don't get cross with me, not on the Bible, ultimately, but on a person, Jesus and we'll look at that also secondarily. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, because I need it. And then we're going to look at this uh, couple of, of, of um, issues within this objection. Lord, we thank you so much that you, um, you're here. And that you love people, as we've been hearing all morning. And I pray, Lord God, that you will uh, fill us today with a fresh sense of amazement that you have bothered to reveal yourself to us. And that you love us, and you want us to know you. Thank you, Lord, in a very average, somewhat cold, shabby school hall. <laughs> we believe you're here. You talk about a treasure in a jar of clay. That's such a relief. Thank you, Lord God, that we can be weak and unimpressive and a bit of a mess. And yet you still love us. That's crazy. 
Or we can be proud and think we're brilliant and really impressive and you still love us. You're great, Lord. We love you. Amen. So first of all, then, just going to make a few comments um, about this first, um, this first response, really, which is Christians actually ultimately believe that the Bible is not a brutal, contradictory book full of fairy tales. The first thing to kind of say is that the Bible isn't, in essence, a book. I mean, it is a book, but the first thing to realize it is a collection of many different books. It's, in essence, a library of many, many books written by many different authors, written over many different years, in many different contexts. And, and you, as, we, as we look further on, you'll realize why that is so incredibly significant. Um, and it often helps us to understand when we're looking at the Bible and what appears to be contradictions, often actually we will see is simply a misunderstanding of the first point, which is that the Bible is, it is a book with a single author, God, but it's also, humanly, a collection of books. It's a library with many different authors. So, for example, the Bible includes things like what you could call primeval narrative, i.e. how the world came to begin. It involves uh, literary genres like, um, that involve imperial and military history. It involves literary genres um, such as family history and uh, legal material. It also involves huge amounts of poetry and proverbs. There's four biographies of Jesus in the, in the Bible, and there's 20 letters. So the first thing to understand is the Bible, then, is a, it's a library of different books written by different authors over a long period of time with a huge range of literary genre. Now, why is that important? It's important, first of all, because, for example, with this first uh, common objection that the Bible seems a very brutal thing, how can that be compatible with a God who's loving? Well, the first thing to say is, is actually, in a sense, to be honest and open, that because the Bible involves, and in some elements of it and some books of it are effectively military history, it does involve accurate accounts of actual wars, actual battles that happened. Now, that doesn't mean that God condones them, but what it does mean is that, for example, if, I don't know, Winston Churchill was to write a huge multiple, multiple volume account of the Second World War, and in it nobody actually died, it would just seem very, very strange. It wouldn't seem particularly authentic. And the Bible is a book which doesn't shy away from the brutality and the reality of, of the history of the world. It actually involves it. And so, in a sense, we have to first of all say that when you understand, as it were, the breadth of the type of writing that is included in the Bible, involving and including military history, it does involve it. It does include what could be seen as brutal things that actually happened. But part of the reason this isn't a negative thing is, number one, because it doesn't mean that God necessarily condones those things that happened. And also, it does help us to realize the authenticity. I'm told that if you go to places like the British Museum and other such places, there are literal physical documents from ancient history, which when you look at them, they literally can see, oh, that's a Persian document about the, the history of Persia. And you can see actual battles that happened correspond to what particularly the Old Testament talks about. And you can see that this is a historical thing that has authenticity. So the Bible is a library, including in some elements of it, things that seem and are brutal, but don't necessarily mean that that's something that God would condone. Also, this phrase here, a book of fairy tales, I think we need to understand often a kind of behind um, 
many of our presuppositions about the Bible is that we kind of think, well, if God is real and he was to speak, surely he would speak in ways that, are, that would be taken literally. I think we can often assume that if God were real and he were speaking, it must be taken purely literally. But actually, when you think about how language works, although sometimes language is designed to be interpreted literally, often, actually, in, in our life even now, it's designed to be used with a much broader scope. Language involves some things that are literal and much stuff that isn't literal, and that's deliberate. They're still written by real people in real challenging times and circumstances, but they were often used, the language was used in a way to describe things that weren't meant ever to be literal. So even if you think about the English language now, it's absolutely stuffed full, isn't it, of things. You know, if you talk to an American, for example, and you're just chatting away, you'll suddenly realise how much of your language is not actually literal, it's metaphoric, but it's something that we get used to. So language, therefore, has a breadth to it. I think one of the problems is we can sometimes, when we look at the Bible, we can think, well, either, either in life there are things that are pure fairy tale, like Father Christmas or something, or things are literal. They're only one of the two. And the Bible surely, therefore, must fit into this category of believing like in fairy tales. And I actually remember when I was an, when I was an atheist, coming to the, the realisation, oh my goodness, my mum and dad, actually, they actually believe like the Bible is actually real. It's like thinking that they actually believe in Father Christmas. You know, they, this is bizarre. But actually, the Bible contains some literature which is absolutely literal but it also contains huge amounts which is never designed to be taken purely literally. It's meant to be taken with, with, with a deliberate metaphoric understanding to help us understand the things that God wants us to understand. Still written by real people in real times, but not designed to be understood in that purely literal ground. There's a middle ground, as it were. And I think this also connects with this claim that Christianity contradicts itself. And I think there are times when you look at the Bible and it seems, doesn't it, like that does seem to contradict that thing. But actually, it doesn't necessarily mean it actually does. Often, actually, what it means is you have to work a little bit in terms of understanding the context in which they were written. You have to say, why was this written? What was the original intent of the original author? See, one of the biggest challenges we have, which is why we tend to think things contradict each other, is that we tend to unconsciously assume the Bible was written by people like us, for people like us. And the reality is the Bible obviously was written in a time where people were different to us, in the sense that they hadn't lived in the 21st century age. There, were, there are differences in the people who wrote and to the people that they're writing to. Now, it doesn't mean at all that the Bible is irrelevant, but what it does mean is that we have to use our minds a little bit in terms of understanding the time in which they wrote. And what that means is, is that sometimes they don't always write in the way that we would want them to write. Does that make sense? Because they're different, writing to different people, we would say, oh, I wish it was written in this certain particular accessible way. But sometimes, often we have to understand because of who's writing it and who they're writing to, it just doesn't quite work like that. And so with that in mind, I want to suggest four particular types of context that we need to bear in mind when we read the Scriptures. Four particular types of context that help us often understand when something seems contradictory, actually it isn't. 
The first of them is what we would call the literary context. The literary context. I.e., when you're reading the Bible with all those different types of books within it, the first question is, what type of writing are we actually reading? What type of writing? How was it originally meant to be read? This particular book that I read. So let me give you an example. If I was to say to you, here's a story, here's a, here's a piece of writing, and it begins with the words, um, once upon a time, you, what, what would that be? You can shout it out. That is obviously, yeah, it's a fairy story, it's a kid's tale, whatever, you wanna, you, whatever term you want to call it. It's a, it's a kid's story, something like that. If, if we were to, if I was to also read at the beginning of a piece of writing that says something like the 14th of January, 2014, it could be a diary, yeah? Or it could be the beginning of, for example, a newspaper article. You see, it feels very different, doesn't it? Now, the thing is, it's very easy for us to interpret accurately those different types of literary. One is a child's story, one is either a journal or a newspaper article, right? We get that. Everyone with me so far? We can understand those are different. Now, the trouble is, when you read the Bible, when you're reading like Genesis or a book like Isaiah or even books in the New Testament, it's not always as instinctively easy to spot immediately what type of literary genre you're reading. And so you don't necessarily have the accurate expectations that you would have if we understood what it was like. So the question needs to be not so much, is this, is this literal or not? The question is, is what did the original writer intend when he wrote it? So let me give you a little illustration so this makes some kind of sense. There's a book in the Bible called The Song of Songs, okay? It is about erotic poetry, okay? It is unashamedly about that, written by a guy called Solomon. And there's lots of poetry in there that is designed to describe his feelings of uh, love, shall we say, um, for the opposite sex. Now, if you were to read that and to see it as literal, okay, as some people say, we have to understand it, then you get yourselves into troubles. Because it has, I think there might be even a picture here. There we are. If you are to read it literally, he says things like this, describing his uh, love, should we say, for this woman. He says, you have eyes like doves. Now, clearly, what he's saying is your eyes are, they, I don't quite understand what, what it was with doves, but maybe, maybe it's that they're kind of peaceful and beautiful and delicate. Who knows? This is illustrating my point. The second, he would say, he, in it says things like, your temples are like pomegranates. Now, I'm thinking, I don't know if I've ever seen a pomegranate, but obviously in the Middle East, when this was written, pomegranates were popular. I guess he's saying your temples are like juicy and fruity and sensuous and beautiful. I don't know. He's not literally saying they are pomegranates, okay? Or the, the really funny one is when he says, your hair is like a flock of goats dancing down Mount Gilead. Now, Mount Gilead was a literal mountain. Uh, obviously, that kind of poetic line had impact, uh, on the generation in which it was penned, okay? Uh, you know, goats were often black, and, and he's obviously imagined this sort of river of almost goats flying down a mountain, and going, yes, your hair reminds me of that. And everyone's going, yes, absolutely. I have never said that to Josie, my wife. I don't think I ever will. It, the point being, it's not literal, okay? It's poetry, and that's okay. That, that actually, when you understand the Bible, Often what seems like contradiction or just weirdness 
is actually when you only view it with a very limited, narrow understanding that it's all going to be very literal. Does that make sense? Okay, a second context you need to understand, not just literary, i.e. what type of writing, but also is the historic context. And this is hugely key when you understand that the Bible, each book was written in a different historic context. And you have to ask, what was the world like when this was written? What was happening? Why? Because when you understand that, it often enables you to understand why it is things that might seem one way are actually the other way. For example, we can sometimes, people can sometimes look at the Bible, maybe some passage in the Old Testament and say, oh, that looks particularly brutal, the things that are being said. But actually, if you understand that perhaps actually what God was saying to the people of Israel at that time, to us, may seem somewhat brutal. But if you understand the historic context, that actually in comparison with what was happening in the rest of the world at that point, what God was saying was a massive ethical advance, a massive bringing of justice in comparison with what was actually happening in the rest of the world. But often we don't do that. We don't, we don't do the hard work of understanding actually what was the historic context. And so we just want to see it in a way that immediately makes sense. And sometimes we have to understand, no, no, if you understand the historic context, it hugely helps. Number three is what we call the narrative context. Narrative context. It feels like you go back to school, doesn't it? The narrative context is this, is asking the question when you look at the Bible, is what is the story itself trying to say? What is the actual story itself trying to say? Because sometimes we can misunderstand the actual flavor of the story and potentially even wrongly assume that this God of the Bible is saying something through it that perhaps he's not saying. So let me give an illustration. If you were to watch Schindler's List, for example, uh, a, a dramatic film by Steven Spielberg about the Holocaust, at the end of the film, it doesn't then flash up with letters that say, oh, and also, just to make it really clear, this is why people need to, you know, not be nasty to other people groups. It doesn't say that because it doesn't need to. You read this, so you watch this film, and it's incredibly moving and disturbing. And anyone who watches that comes out, and there's a narrative context. It tells a story that this is something that was horrendous and should never be repeated. But sometimes when we read the Bible, actually, if we're only viewing it in a certain way, we can miss what actually the flavor of that story is trying to say in and of itself. So, for example, there's a book um, in the Old Testament called Judges. And the basic idea is that it's a, a very dark time in, in, in Israel's history when their, their leaders were kind of non-existent and it was all going wrong. And what happens is you see this, this nation kind of falling apart. And there's awful things that happen in that period. And you don't look at that book and go, oh, there's all that stuff happening. Therefore, this is clearly how we're meant to live. This is the Bible condoning living in this way. No, the Bible, you look at it, actually says, if you read it, the obvious conclusion is actually this is, this is a warning from God that if you don't live with God in your life, actually this kind of stuff will start to happen. So when you read the Bible, you have to understand also, also this third thing, which is a narrative context. What is the actual story trying to say? And finally, a fourth kind of context to bear in mind is what we call a theological context. And what that simply means is, is that as you read the Bible from Genesis to the end, Revelation, is the picture of God develops. It's not that it changes or contradicts itself, but it does develop. 
So, for example, the idea of the Trinity, God being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, isn't explicit right at the beginning of the Bible. It becomes more and more clear as you go through it. It's God's chosen way of revealing himself. And what that means is, is that you could, if, if you were reading it, go, well, this is crazy. Um, at the beginning, it seems like God's like this, and then it's, later on, it seems like this. Surely it's contradicting itself. Whereas actually, there is a, a God design to the Scriptures as they go, as we go through them, that God is revealed more and more explicitly as it goes on. It doesn't particularly, at the beginning of the Bible, emphasize God as Father. The very first element of God, you see, is, is, is the Creator. But as you go through it, the Bible says, but actually, God is a Father. And that becomes more and more clear. So, I know this sounds rather technical and a little bit kind of, you know... Um, hard work, all these different contexts. But what I'm trying to do is, is, to, is to help us understand that the Bible itself, no Christians here do base their life on what they would say is fairy tales. It's not like we actually, yeah, along with like, you know, the Brothers Grimm and Rumpelstiltskin, we believe the Bible. It's in the same, we believe these fairy tales even though they're just fairy tales. We honestly as Christians do believe that the Bible is fundamentally not a brutal contradictory book full of fairy tales, but is something that is amazing. But what I would say is this, and my final point is this, and with this I'll finish, is that ultimately, actually, Christians don't base their life ultimately on the Bible itself anyway. And what I mean by that, and please don't you know, attack me, what I'm trying to say is, is obviously there are literally millions of Christians around the world who have never read a Bible, but they have a profoundly real relationship with Jesus. Perhaps the Bibles are just not allowed in, those, in the place where they live, or they can't read. So ultimately, we have to realize that although we prize the Bible, we love the Bible, and the Bible is an incredibly precious and unique thing, and all those contextual things and all that is helpful, but actually, ultimately, Christians don't believe or rather, don't base their life ultimately on the Bible itself. If you just almost forget the Bible for a moment, what it means to be a Christian is, in, in very simple terms, it's to follow Jesus. Jesus says, come and follow me. <laughs> so that first point is rather complicated, I know, certainly it seems to me. But actually, the simple heart of Christianity is about following a person, a real person, that Jesus was a Jew born probably around 5 BC, who lived an extraordinary life, who died publicly on a cross for the sins of the world and said, I'm going to come back from the dead and you won't believe it. And actually he did, publicly, verifiably. And that as Christians, we ultimately base our faith on fixing the eyes of our hearts on a person, on him. You'll notice that none of the songs we sang today or will ever sing ultimately will praise and worship the Bible. We praise and we worship a person. Jesus. The Bible is amazing and just what's, you know, historically it's, it's fascinating to know that I'm told in comparison with many other ancient manuscripts that we get all of our kind of history from about, you know, Pontius Pilate, for example, which we never seem to doubt. In comparison with that, the number of ancient manuscripts that have then um, formed the Bible is huge in comparison. There's a huge amount of of, of physical, tangible manuscripts that have been written, thousands of them, which should cause us to be, yay, this is great, and, we, and those manuscripts are taken and translated into English and they're put into a Bible. But the point of it, the point of the Bible, can I say this, is a means to an end. 
It's an amazing means. I love this thing. But it's ultimately a means to an end, which is a relationship with that same Jesus who did live 2,000 years ago on earth, and now we truly believe lives as well. And so what this means is, is that from the Bible, we form a picture of who this Jesus is. It gives us, ultimately, from the beginning to the end, an incredible picture of who this person is. And what is so fascinating is that this person, Jesus, loved, esteemed, and highly honoured the Bible. He, he didn't just say, oh, the Bible is an interesting thing. When you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus profoundly esteemed and loved the Bible. So you could say this, our actual primary faith is in Jesus. And because Jesus loved the Bible and spoke about the Bible and knew the Bible and trusted the Bible, actually, as Christians, we put our faith in him and therefore the Bible. It's not that our primary faith and trust is in the Bible, and therefore, because of that, we love Jesus. Do you see? It's actually this extraordinary thing that Christians believe is that we really believe he's real. And I know we can't see him with our physical eyes, but that he is more real than the person sitting next to you. And because when you look at this picture of who he is and his love for the Bible and his extraordinary love and his uniqueness, the fact that when he walked on this earth, his, his life was filled with serving other people, healing the blind, raising the dead, giving equality for women, looking for justice for the poor. In a world that is filled with darkness and depression and death, Jesus Christ came overflowing with life and with light and with resurrection power, the, the point of, of our hope is that as Christians, we don't ultimately put our faith in the Bible, though we love it. We put our faith in a person, in him. And he was someone who, 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 through his very example, said, love the Bible, trust the Bible. When you struggle at times, you're thinking, how does that work up? We can almost hear Jesus saying, work with it, because this, this thing is amazing. But actually, our ultimate faith and trust is in a person. Is in a person. I know um, when I, 17 years ago, first I came to this church, I had, for those, particularly those weeks and months when I was really looking to the faith, I had so many sort of mental, as it were, head questions about the Bible and about this and that, and, th and they were really important. But what I found was, was that <laughs> although my head was trying to keep up with this, I came to the realization that if this God is real, a God who's made the entire cosmos, then it is possible there might be limits to how much my brain can actually comprehend him. Just but just potentially. And what I found was, in a way I can't even completely um, explain, was that although my head was trying to work this out, my heart, week by week by week, was being changed by someone utterly real, unseen and yet utterly real. And it was just kind of being drawn in involuntarily. My head was going, no, 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 not Christianity. Surely not Christianity. Anything but Christianity. It's so confusing. Ah. But my, my, all I can say is my soul and my heart was, was, being, was drawing me in. And I would say for some of you here today, you're even experiencing something of that. You're sitting here and you're thinking, there's so many problems with it. There's so many things I don't get. But actually, there is something in your heart that is strangely intrigued by it. And I guess if that's you, I would just encourage you to... Uh, to keep walking on that journey. This room is packed with people who say, that's my story, that's my story, that's my story. We love the Bible, we cherish the Bible, we preach the Bible. But actually, it takes a little bit of work sometimes to understand why it can seem, it can seem contradictory when I don't think it is. 
But ultimately, it is very simple. It really is. Even if you never understand any of those contextualize things at all, it is about following a person who is more stunningly, gloriously wonderful and more real. The fact that many people have cried this morning is not some kind of you know, prearranged thing. It's because when you realize that this God of the universe is real and he is just mind-blowingly wonderful and awesome and holy and he genuinely wants to have an intense relationship with you in your heart, that nothing can change, you kind of get a bit emotional. You can't really help it. So if that is you, you're on that journey, I just encourage you, look out wherever you live, if it's here in Canterbury or, or around here, for particularly something called Alpha, which is a fantastic course, which looks at these exact kind of issues. And we're running a student one at the moment. We'll be running a kind of regular one uh, in a few weeks' time. It's a fantastic thing, a course that millions of people have done. Or otherwise, just keep coming here. Keep asking questions like I did. I didn't at that point go on an Alpha course. I just came week by week by week. I had a billion questions. But something in me thought, if there's, if there's a 1% chance that this is true, that this God is real, I have to find out if this is true. Well, I'm just going to invite Sarah and the band up. Sarah, where are you? Tim, what time are we going to be finishing? Now, okay. We won't have the band up. You can sit on the front row. Let's just stand up to our feet. Sorry, guys, my fault. Just like to keep it, you know, moving. What I'd love us just, just to do in this moment of silence, I know I've done quite a lot of talking and you've done very well at listening. I guess I want our minds to be somewhat stimulated and, and at peace that actually to, to believe this stuff is not, is not crazy. It's not like, oh, just believe in Santa. He is real. It's not that. You know, there, there's a mental stability to this, which I've attempted in my own imperfect way to demonstrate. But it is actually really simple. And I just want us just in the stillness of this place, some of you have got young kids or, you know, and, and, and in a the moment they're going to come running through those doors or we're going to go and get them. Just take a moment just to, maybe you might want to close your eyes and just, just in your own way, just take a moment and just say, say anything really that you want to to him. He's real and he loves you. Some of you are here are Christians and just use this chance now, just quietly, just before him, if anything has struck you, just to lift it to him. And if you're here and you say, I'm, I don't think I'm a Christian, but I'm vaguely intrigued, then just use this just next 30 seconds or so, just uh, like I did. Effectively, I said, God, if you're real, then show it. <laughs> it was as simple as that. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Yeah, Father, we want to thank you that we, we ultimately follow you, Lord. We love your word. We cherish your word. But we celebrate the fact that it points to you. And we don't just follow an idea or a philosophy. We follow a person who, when everything else falls away in this life, 
is the one stable person. I just want to pray for anyone here, particularly who say, who would say, I don't think I'm a Christian. I'm interested, or maybe you're not even interested and you're bored and you're thinking about your lunch. That's fine. I just pray, Lord God, for all of us that you will, you'll just, you'll just win our hearts again and again. For some of us, it might be the first time. For some of us, it might be the 10,000th time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.